Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about science fiction and everything else that just blew into the Windy City. I'm Charlie Jane Anders. I'm a science fiction writer and occasional getabout about town. And I'm the author of the Unstoppable Trilogy. The first two books, Victories Greater Than Death and Dreams Bigger Than Heartbreak, are out now. And the third book, Promises Stronger Than Darkness, comes out in April. I'm Annalie Newitz. I'm a science journalist and a science fiction writer, and my latest book is called The Terraformers. It comes out in January. All right, so this week we're going to be talking about therapy. We are recording here live at Worldcon, so you're going to hear audience in the background here. This is only the second time we've ever recorded this podcast live, so we're really excited. We're talking about therapy, both good and bad. Speculative fiction is full of stories about heroic therapists like Counselor Troy, but also evil therapists who brainwash and gaslight you. But we're not just talking about therapists. We're going to delve into how a story itself can be very therapeutic for the audience, whether for good or bad. And just a heads up, we're not really going to get too deep into questions of how we define neurotypicality or mental health or mental illness in this episode. Instead, we're mostly just talking about what it means to have a therapeutic experience. And to help us discuss this, we're so incredibly happy to be joined by our special guest, the luminous Theo Germain, uh, who starred in the most recent in the recent movie They Slash Them, as well as the TV show Work in Progress, two narratives that deal a lot with therapy. Uh, you may also know Theo from the Netflix show The Politician. Welcome, Theo. Hi, I am Theo. Thank you so much for having me, both of you. All right. Thanks so much for joining us. Next week on our audio extra, you'll be able to catch the Q&A that we did with the audience here at Worldcon. That's all the folks here in the audience. And if you would like to clap or scream or say anything right now, let's do it. And by the way, I do want to give a shout out to our lovely Patreon community, which hangs out with us on Discord and keeps the conversations going all week in between episodes. Y'all rock. And if you're here in the audience, you know, just raise your hands if you, yay, oh my God, Sue, hi, um, and Peter, and I saw one other hand over here. Um, and so, you know, anybody who wants to can just give us two or three bucks a month on Patreon, and you can be in our Discord and hang out with us. We're just in there all the time. Um, all right, let's get started. some definitions. What do we mean by good therapy? Um, I think it's about creating a more coherent narrative of your life. It's, it's basically an act of storytelling. It's a way of making sense of everything that's happened to you rather than trying to forget about the bad stuff or dismissing your experiences as a bunch of like random chaos. Um, a good therapeutic experience makes you feel seen, it makes you feel as though your identity is reflected and recognized in a positive way by other people. Basically, it allows you to see yourself as a whole person, flaws and all, without the distortions of stereotypes or moralistic judgments. 
So I guess what I'm saying is that good therapy is a form of storytelling that aims to heal us, to represent us the way we want to be seen. And one thing I want to mention is that a good representation of therapy and fiction should showcase how much working through your issues is hard work that takes time. It's not just something where you make a sudden breakthrough and then things are just suddenly all better. I've, when I've had breakthroughs in my own therapy, it's been after a lot of talking through the same issues over and over. And I know my therapist is just like, oh, this again. But you know, she is very patient. And therapy isn't just necessarily about resolving an immediate crisis. For many of us, it's helped us to figure out who we are and what kind of shape we want to make in the world. And okay, Theo, what do you think are the hallmarks of good therapy or good depictions of therapy? Oh gosh, well, everything that you just said, I really, really relate to, and that was a good answer. Um, and I think if you're talking about a therapist in particular, like if you're looking for someone you know, to work with, something that I always look for is, is this person you know, really aware of LGBTQ issues? You know, if this therapist is white, are they actually trying to work through and deal with what their cognitive bias might be because of the way society is, you know? Is this person understanding of, you know, and pro like sex work? Is this person understanding if you have a disability? Is this person willing to be a therapist, but also really be real about what's going on and like what the current circumstances are of our society and like, and if they also can understand that they might make a mistake sometimes. And there might be something that you are an expert on that they are not an expert on because they haven't experienced it. So it's like really uh, getting a sense of validation, but also not being validated to the point that you can't work through you you, like work through your issues, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think those are some hallmarks of good therapy that I like thinking of. Oh my God, I love all of that. Yeah, that's really, um, that's really great. And that's part of what we want to talk about today. But first, let's talk about some examples of good therapy in speculative fiction. So weirdly, superhero comics contain a surprising number of extremely helpful therapists. Like therapists in superhero comics are legit. In the Suicide Squad comics that were being done by John Astrander and sometimes his wife Kim Yale and a bunch of different artists, the supervillains who are and random other expendable soldiers who are sent on, you know, basically deadly missions, when they're not off, you know, fighting monsters or, you know, whatever, or taking down Batman, they get sent to counseling with a therapist named Simon Legrieve, who actually helps them work through a lot of their issues. And this is a really great way that we get to understand these characters better. And we see them dealing with the traumas of being sent on all these deadly missions. And, you know, and meanwhile, in the Incredible Hulk comics, there is an actual super therapist who, you know how the Incredible Hulk got powers from gamma radiation and that made... Bruce Banner, like, into this giant green, like, you know, can tear down buildings, dude. So there's also a therapist in those comics named Doc Samson, who got super therapist powers from gamma radiation. <laughs> and he's also kind of strong, but mostly he just has super therapy powers. He's just, like, the strongest therapist there is. And the more angry you get, the more therapeutic he gets. And it's just, it's so great. And... So one of my favorite issues of Peter David's run in The Hulk, Doc Samson actually does group therapy with Bruce Banner and the two different versions of The Hulk at the time, the Gray Hulk and the Green Hulk. And the three of them kind of sit and do group therapy and they work through their issues and they deal with the childhood trauma that turned them into The Hulk because they shared one childhood. 
and they become a more integrated official into individual. And I'm actually kind of sad that now in the MCU, in the movies and TV shows, the Hulk is kind of integrated, but we didn't get to see the Hulk go through therapy. They kind of joke about it in the first episode of She-Hulk, actually. And Doc Sampson actually shows up in the 2008 Incredible Hulk movie uh, played by Ty Burrell, but he is not given any moments to be a super therapist, and I'm kind of bummed about that. Also, like in the in She-Hulk, it's not actually the Hulk who has had therapy. It's Hulk who is smart, right? Mm -hmm. He's smart Hulk, which I think is really different. It's kind of interesting to think about how they made that shift from like, this is the Hulk who can like deal with his feelings versus, Mm -hmm. you know, this is the Hulk who's just smart. Um, I think it says a lot about our values is that we'd rather have a dude who's smart than a dude who understands how to have feelings in a healthy way. So I just wanted to mention that there's kind of two ways that we see therapy in fiction like this, kind of like what you've been talking about with having an actual therapist in the narrative. That's the kind of counselor Troy model where you actually have someone who's playing the role of an actual accredited medical professional. Well, sort of accredited, depending. And this is, I mean, this is what Star Trek does with the ship's counselors, right? I mean, we see Troy on the bridge and also on Discovery, there's a really major character who's a therapist. And it's interesting because you don't see that a lot in space opera. Um, it's, It's actually very unusual to see a therapist character. However, there's another way that therapy shows up in film and TV and stories, which is when the narrative itself kind of allows characters or maybe the audience to work through difficult issues. Um, And this is going to sound really bizarre, but I saw this a lot in late 20th century horror movies like Nightmare on Elm Street, where the monster goes away when you stop fearing him. I'm sorry, spoilers for a movie from the 1980s. Um, The monster is, you know, this bad guy who's hunting these high school students and they only they only conquer him by conquering their own feelings. And when I was a kid, the first Nightmare on Elm Street movie made a huge impression on me because I was like, oh yeah, a lot of the bad things I'm dealing with, like bullies, get their power from fear. And if I don't fear them, I can start to ignore them and feel a little better about myself. Theo, are there any examples of fiction that you feel like had a therapeutic property or a therapist that you like? Honestly, Star Trek in its entirety is very, very therapeutic for me. Um, but there's a couple of episodes from a different, uh, a couple of the different TV shows in particular that are really, really good. And one of them is from Voyager, and it is season four, episode twelve. It's called Mortal Coil, and it is about the character Neelix. And um, I don't know who's seen that episode or not, but at the beginning of the episode, uh, he dies. He gets into a freak accident, and he has to be brought back to life. And um, he goes through this, just this intense emotional experience over the entire course of the episode. And, um, you know, trigger warning, he, he makes a suicide attempt technically, you know, in the episode. And he, he has to, um, you know, be brought back by, uh, I think there's a little girl who ends up like, you know, saving the day who's like, you have to, you know, save me from the monsters or something like that. So he, he's basically like this. It, it, it feels like it's this huge like metaphor for processing grief and also for like PTSD because he's this person who's like very bright and very friendly and very warm and like is there for everybody. And then this tragedy happens. And not only that, but when he dies, his like religion is challenged, you know, when he passes away and before he's before he's brought back. And the episode for me is so cathartic because it's like 
he still finds his way back to reality and finds his way back into community after this you know, terrifying, you know, near-death experience happens to him. And I, I watched that episode. I was watching it again today. I'll just watch it and cry because it's just, it's so good. And like, it it reminds me that, you know, he, he really, you know, doesn't think that he's worth anything anymore after this thing happens. And he can't see, he can't see life the way it was, you know, before this accident happened. And it makes me think about like, I don't know, I just really appreciate the way Star Trek dealt with like death and religion and like the balance between science and spirituality in this episode. And, you know, if I ever need to pick me up, like I, I, I will watch this episode because it, 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 it gives me a sense of hope. Um, and there's another one that uh, is, it's Troy, it's in TNG and Troy and her mom uh, go through this kind of thing together where it's revealed that uh, Luaxana has had another child who's passed away. Oh. And... Um, she uh, feels like she can't move on because of this like horrible tragedy that's happened in her life. It's another episode that's about, I, I'm really interested if anything like has to do with like grief or has to do with processing loss or um, I literally could talk about Star Trek all day, honestly. Yeah, yeah, so many episodes really, really impact me really positively, yeah. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about how speculative fiction can be therapeutic specifically for queer and trans and non-binary people for a minute. So many people in the LGBT community say they see themselves in stories that have robots and aliens and vampires, just name that magical creature. And I'm wondering, what do you two think? Is it therapeutic for us to see ourselves in non-human or monstrous creatures? Or is that sometimes kind of a problem because it's more like, say, robots are a metaphor for gayness and transness rather than just showing us some actual gay humans humping or gay robots? <laughs> I think it's like a lot of things that can be either therapeutic or harmful in terms of like how much it centers us in our own stories. Like if a story others us in the process of creating a me metaphor, then that is harmful. Like so many stories about queer aliens, which serve to alienate us, the viewer, from queerness. But if it's created out of, out of love and if out, and it's grounded and rooted in the experiences of queer people and the experiences of queer people are centered in the story, then I think it can be super positive. But Theo, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Oh, gosh. Um, I honestly think it goes both ways for me. You know, sometimes I'm like, I, you know, I really feel different and I want to be seen, you know, in a character who is different in some kind of way. And sometimes it does feel alienating. Sometimes I'm like, you know, I just want things to feel normal. You know, I don't want queer representation to be like the extra special thing or be, you know, like another thing that I can think of very specifically that's not connected to, you know, being queer, but like there are a lot of um, black actors or actors, other actors of color who end up playing, you know, non-human characters. You know, I think of, um, God, there's so many examples. Uh, it's, it's good sometimes. It's like, it's, it feels good and sometimes it doesn't feel good. As an actor, I can say, you know, I, I have the same sort of experience where it's like sometimes if I'm seeking a job, it's like I want to be the cool, weird, you know, alien sort of thing because we are all aliens if you really think about it, you know, because we don't, you know, we we're here in space and earth is so small and, you know, to us we're normal, but you know, to anybody else who's visiting, we'd be aliens. Um, but yeah, sometimes I'm like, I just want things to be normal. I just want like, you know, to not feel like I'm different, but I don't know. I, th I think that, that at the bottom line of that is like, 
we just need more queer people that are creating more stories because we can do whatever that metaphor is the best, I think. But are there any monsters or otherworldly creatures that you really want to play? Uh, that I, yeah, totally. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, oh, literally like, uh, you know, vampires, werewolves. Um, I really have a thing for robots and androids. So like any sort of, you know, sci-fi sort of thing like that, any sort of like Commander Data-esque character, oh I would God. just kill to play. Awesome. Um, so yeah, I'm someone who's very much like, yeah, I want to play all the weird people. Yeah, but, yeah. but yeah, I also, you know, want to be the normal straight man sometimes. <laughs> um, I just want to pick. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, and also now I'm like, I want you to be a vampire robot. Like, is that a thing? You know, I'm going to take some notes. Robot yeah. yeah I'm a robot, robot vampire. Okay, so a robot, a robot vampire. vampire could yeah. like attach to another robot and like drain Change. their memory reserves, drain their power. That actually makes me think, um, do you know the video game Stray that just came no. out? Oh my God, does anybody know Stray? Yeah. Okay, the video, okay, it's a video game you play as a cat and it takes place oh, in a, it takes place in a futuristic city and there's kind of like vampire robots that happen in this video game. Um, the human population is gone, uh, but there are robots that are left and then there are other robots who have, I think they've eaten all of the humans and now they can eat the other robots. So they're kind of like parasitic zombie robots. So like maybe some. Wow. Nice. It's really good. Yeah. I want, I want to yeah. Robots. I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole because suddenly I was thinking of like Rudy Rucker's robots, which eat human brains. Yes. And like, that's just, you know, that's a whole other situation. All right. So what are some examples of science fiction characters who really made you two feel seen um, or feel good about your genders. So I want you to be thinking about that. I'm going to tell you a couple examples that made me excited because I'm really feeling She-Hulk right now. And I think as a non-binary person, um, for a, a large part of my life, there wasn't a lot of stuff. Um, there were people who felt non-binary to me that had that vibe. And for me personally, that was generally characters like she-Hulk, women who were strong and big and could punch things and beat men up or beat up other large creatures. It doesn't have to be a man. It could be a large, whatever, non-gendered blob. Um, and so I also really love Brienne of Tarth in Game of Thrones. She has such envy energy to me. I know that her character is supposed to be a woman and there's the horrible thing that happens to her character. But when she has a sword and she's with Podrick, I'm like, this is what I like to see. And one other shout out I want to do is to Nicola Griffith's new novella Spear, uh, which has a character, Parator, who is a Parsifal, um, a version of the Parsifal character from the King Arthur mythos. And that character is also a sword-wielding, tough woman, non-binary person, so those are all of my good, yummy, non-binary feelings. I mean, I think a lot about the character of Nia Nall, a.k.a. Dreamer from Supergirl, who, you know, as a trans woman, her storyline was incredibly meaningful to me. You know, we don't get a lot of trans superheroes in especially movies and TV these days. We're still kind of waiting for that to arrive, I think. And she was just such an incredible character. And she, Nia comes from an alien species where, you know, basically psychic dream powers where you can have prophetic dreams but also harness dream energy that allows you to do cool stuff those powers are passed down from mother to daughter um and when Nia, Nia Mal's mom dies 
her powers get passed on to Nia, her trans daughter, instead of the cis daughter, the way everybody was expecting. So Nia's sister doesn't get the powers like she was expecting to. The cisgender sister who was expecting to get the powers is really pissed off and is like really like kind of a kind of a jerk about it. And for a few seasons about after that, Nia Nall is kind of working through her kind of feelings, her guilt, her imposter syndrome about like the fact that she got these powers that were supposed to go to her sister. And, you know, even though it's this amazing validation for her gender that it's only goes down to daughters. And so it was given to the trans daughter, but it takes her a long time to finally believe that she deserves this power and to finally kind of come to terms with her mother's death. It's so good and so well done. I also want to just give a quick shout out to Steven Universe, which show that we've talked about on the podcast a lot. So we, we don't want to just become like the Steven Universe fan podcast. We kind of do, but we we kind of don't. But there's a lot of great stuff about healing from trauma and dealing with, you know, just hard, scary stuff in that show. And in particular, the episode Mindful Education is kind of like a, an amazing therapy session where Garnet takes uh, Stephen and Connie into this kind of dreamscape and helps them to deal with anxiety. And there's a song that goes with it that I listen to constantly because it's so therapeutic. Theo, how about you? Oh, gosh. Well, these aren't like specifically, specifically queer, but it's an example of stuff that I just imprinted on all over the place uh, when I was consuming this media for the first time. And one character very specifically was um, Sheik in The Legend of Zelda, The Ocarina of Time. Uh, when Princess, I would, so I would play this video game all the time when I was a little, little kid. Um, I was like a little, little kid in the late 90s. And um uh, yeah, when Princess Zelda would turn into Sheik, I was just like, oh my God, what is happening? Like, I'm feeling all of these things all over my body. I think this is me. Like, I want to be this person. You know, that really, yeah. So she, they, this, this, this entity that was Sheik, um, I just was like, I, I thought they were super hot and I wanted to be them. Uh, something else that I was really, really impacted in the early, uh, impacted by in the early aughts was uh, the X-Men movies that came out in like 2002 and 2003. And so many of the different characters in those movies, I just was like imprinting on left and right, whether it was Mystique, just because, you know, she can, she can shapeshift, you know, even though she's a bad character, you know, she's a bad character or whatever. Uh, you know, she can change all over the place. And I, you know, as, as a pretty gender nonconforming kid, I felt very validated by that. Um, and also the, uh, the character Rogue was somebody else who I like really, really was impacted by. And I think it was because her power made it so she couldn't really connect with people in a way that was, uh, I almost said neurotypical. Um, so maybe there's a metaphor in there. But yeah, X-Men is something else that I was I was super impacted by and, you know, not super queer, but, but felt very, very queer to me in so many ways. I feel like the X-Men have been like a therapeutic narrative for a lot of queer people. Like I just constantly hear that from, from queer people about the X-Men specifically. I really want to talk about the show Work in Progress that you were on. I loved your performance. It was so great. And your character, Chris, has this really therapeutic vibe. And it's interesting to see him playing off of Abby, who's kind of the main character and having, or the main person who's having kind of a psychological crisis. And when Chris comes into her life, he has this very therapeutic effect on her and offers her this kind of sex-positive queer family that is a real alternative to the experiences that she's been having. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about 
coming up with that character and whether you were thinking about the idea that Chris might be a kind of therapeutic presence in her life? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, sometimes I thought about it from a little bit more of the position of, um, like, he's a, he's a really, really awesome character, but he still also is kind of like the savior boyfriend who shows up and like, you know, but obviously if you've seen the show, by the end of the show, they're in a very different place than they are in the beginning. The thing that I thought about the most in working through that was just like, uh, what sort of character flaws is Chris dealing with? Because you really get to see what Abby's going through throughout that entire show, but you don't ever get to really see what he's going through. And by the end, he's like, you know, I can't, I can't do this for you anymore. Um, it, it really made me think a lot about uh, how everybody is in, everybody is navigating some kind of, you know, boundary negotiation in their life. And you know, Chris very specifically, you know, a way that we're similar is that, like, I think at that point, you know, he, he really started to have issues uh, with boundaries, you know, around Abby. I think that there's a way that maybe she started to lean on him in a way that maybe kind of crossed something that was, you know, okay. But he tried to do the best that he could in being like, you know, I can't be there for you anymore, but I still care about you and I love you, you know, and I, but we, we have to part now. Um, that's kind of a different answer, but that's, I, I was, I was really thinking about, about uh, what to, what is balance and like I was I was really honestly the show was therapeutic for me in the sense that it really started teaching me about things that I needed to learn about myself and places where I needed to set better boundaries because when people are sad and anxious I similar to Chris you know just want to help and just want to fix and just want to soothe and um, you know have have been in positions before where it's like oh no I have to set a boundary now um and sometimes I don't understand that until I see a piece of art that kind of teaches me that and so I didn't expect to be taught so many things by the tv show um which makes me miss it all the you know all the more because it was such a great it was so awesome yeah it was two seasons of amazing television which I recommend that everybody Mm -hmm. go out and watch so, but what was it like working on that show and, you know, working with, you know, all those amazing folks and, you know, Lily Wachowski and everybody? Were there any impromptu therapeutic mo- moments during the making of the show? Oh, my gosh. Well, firstly, it was so much fun working with everyone. I could not believe that I was working with Lily Wachowski. I was like, I just was like speechless. Um, I, I still honestly have issues texting her sometimes because I'm like, I can't believe that I know you. You're so cool. Uh, yeah, she in particular was really, really awesome. I had just worked on a different show where there was no intimacy director. There was no intimacy design. Yeah, and I um, and I was really uncomfortable, but I didn't, you know, I was so new to TV at the time that I didn't know how to advocate for what I needed. And something that was really, really awesome and healing to me was um, working through the intimacy that, uh, that Abby and Chris have, you know, in the show. It's like, not only are they just making out in the back of a car sometimes, but they're also like, you know, they just have a sex scene at one point, you know, during the show. And we had a lot of rehearsals for it. And Lily especially was very much like, you know, any, you know, we're going to talk through everything, anything that I can do to make you feel safe. If there's anything that you don't feel safe about, if we need to do anything all, you know, over again, um, even on the day of, you know, after we'd done a few rehearsals, we really, really took our time with it. And, um, having a really good intimacy director and somebody who is, especially if you're queer and somebody else who is queer and kind of like gets it, if they're there for you in that way, it really makes all the difference. And that made me so much more confident with things like intimacy on screen, um, which can be hard, you know, if you're a queer person and like, you know, 
you're constantly under some kind of gaze and, you know, people are judging your body because it's different or whatever. Um, yeah, the intimacy, you know, design, I mean, it was intense because there was a lot of intimacy in the show. Yeah. Uh, but the experiences that I had with it were, they were great. Yeah, Lily was a really great intimacy choreographer, designer. That makes me really happy to yeah. hear. So one of the other things that happens in the show is there's these moments of trauma, a lot of which are around gender, some of which are just around intimacy. And at one point we see Abby get misgendered and it's played kind of for laughs, like not the misgendering, but her reaction because she has this kind of humorous meltdown. Um, and then later in the show, uh, there's a very serious moment where um, the character of Abby uh, has discovered Chris's dead name. And that was like one of the few things that Chris said, please, I don't want you to know that. And there's this really intense scene when, when that happens, when Chris realizes that Abby's done that. Um, and it leads to what you were saying with this kind of moment of separation. And I wondered if you could talk about that balancing in the show between, you know, humor and seriousness around gender trauma and like how you how you balanced it as an actor and as a show. Well, firstly, I loved the fact, I mean, that when, when we were going through that part of the story, they when we were getting ready to film, they were very much like, everything is going to be blurred out. Like, you know, Chris's dead name is not going to be shown anywhere in the, anywhere in the show at all. There's an earlier episode in season one where uh, Abby and Chris are at a wedding together and they go out to breakfast and Abby is seeing, you know, the, the diner is like Chris's dead name diner, but everything is blurred out. And, and that part is just really, really funny to me because it's like, oh my God, this impossible situation. And that kind of feels like a little bit of a balancing act with the stuff that happens at the end, you know, where you really get to see Abby you know, in, in an impossible situation that's kind of funny. And then also you see her kind of just breaking down and losing it and like, you know, making a mistake and technically doing something that's kind of violent. And I think that that's important to show because we're just in this weird place with queer representation where, you know, it's mostly cis people that are still kind of making all of the decisions for us, you know, at higher level, you know, television and film and things like that when queer characters are being written, it's like a lot of people will write them, you know, kind of like all one way or the other, you know, like heroes, superheroes, angels, like no issues at all flaws. You know, I've experienced that in some work or it's totally the opposite where they're like just villains or they're bad or they hit all these stereotypes. And Abby's experience over the show kind of like puts her in the middle and that makes it feel really, really real, you know, because it's like, queer people are not perfect. You know, we make mistakes and have trauma and have issues and have anxiety and have, um, you know, have places where our perspectives fall short all the time. And I don't know, I just, I just liked the way that it was really real, I felt like, you know. And it's like, you know, at that point in the show, it's like, you know, she's not a bad person, even when that happens. She just, she just really messed up and she was impulsive and she didn't think, you know, and, and also it showed that like, when you are in a really, really bad place, like sometimes you can do things that you regret. And it, it does get resolved in the second season, which I think is good. Okay, so we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about bad therapy. We've got another podcast that we think you'll love. It's called Subtitle, and it tells stories about languages and the people who speak them. 
If you've ever wondered why some people are so good at learning languages or thought about how different pronouns are represented in Swedish or Japanese, then Subtitle is the podcast for you. One episode profiles a woman who forgot her mother tongue and then set out to rediscover it. Another is about words that seem programmed to make us laugh. Yeah, this is an amazing podcast if you're a language lover, so be sure to check out Subtitle with award-winning journalists Patrick Cox and Kavita Pillay. Listen at Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. Okay, so bad therapy. It's in, in bad therapy is in some sense a perversion of the therapeutic process, right? It, it, it's to do harm instead of healing. It's about pushing you into a toxic and unwelcoming narrative, an unhelpful narrative that makes you feel worse. Bad therapy is often, but not always, non-consensual or mandatory. It's often aimed at either destabilizing you or destroying your sense of self. Um, or just forcing you into conformity. And, you know, the I feel like the heyday of bad therapy stories is really the 1960s and 1970s. It's just full of, like, evil therapists, monstrous counselors, like, just terrible, you know, horrible ther- treatments that people are forced to undergo, including, you know, stuff like The Prisoner is, like, one that comes to mind, where, like, number six is given all these, like, bizarre, you know, inhumane treatments to try and break him down. Yeah, and I think part of this grows out of our the Cold War, um, especially in the 60s, where there were all of these fears about brainwashing, as well as this sort of dawning realization that advertising was something that was using psychology to like lure us into buying things. Mm-hmm. And at that point, people sort of stopped trusting therapy and they stopped trusting the psychological process um, that you undergo when you're in therapy. And by the 1980s, you start having movies like David Cronenberg's The Brood, where there's this evil therapist who helps one of his clients to deal with her rage issues by encouraging her to give birth to these little tiny babies who represent her anger and kill people and also don't have butts for some reason. Like, this is an actual subplot, is that the, one of the ways they figure out that the babies are going to die is because they can't poop. Um, so she's I mean, basically... I had that therapist once. I mean, I that, that, that was that, I had to fire that Don't. therapist. Yeah, exactly. Don't give birth to rage babies with no butt. Um. <laughs> I mean, yes. How do I follow that up? Um, so, Theo, your new movie, They Slash Them, is all about a queer conversion camp. It's sort of like the horror movie version of But I'm a Cheerleader, kind of. And it's sort of the ultimate in bad therapy. And Okay, so what was the process of making that movie like? And how upsetting was it to do this, to act this out and act out these scenes of coercive, destabilizing counseling? And Or, or was it something that you were able to kind of keep a healthy distance from as you were making this film? Oh, well, I got to be totally honest. It was really hard to have good boundaries around all of it sometimes. Um, you know, it's a it's a, a fictional movie about, you know, real things that happen. And I was playing a character who was a lot younger than I was. And so there was a lot that came up about my past. And there was a lot I was processing about my past at the time. And a lot I was processing about therapy that I'd had when I was younger. Yeah, 
it, it, it really was empowering at the same time though, because it was, it was, it was a reminder of all of the things that I, you know, overcame when I was younger. And as much as it brought up a lot of things from the past, it reminded me that I was still here. You know, I had succeeded so much that I had gotten into a place where I was doing a film that was about a lot of things that were connected to like earlier childhood experiences that I'd had. But yeah, it was hard. It was, it was really hard sometimes because uh, especially the therapy scene that happens in the middle of the movie, it's like, how many times has everybody heard something like that to some effect? And I spent so much time when I was younger being like, this doesn't affect me, this doesn't affect me, this doesn't affect me, this doesn't affect me. And it was a defense mechanism. And you look back and you're like, oh my God, I was actually fighting through so many things. And all, all that came up when we were working uh, together last year. Um, yeah, it was hard. It was, it was, it was hard, but it also was, it was positive. Yeah. Your character um, bonds with the other queer characters in the show to kind of deal with everything that's happening. And I wonder if there was something similar going on with the actors on set. There was. Um, working with everybody was really, really awesome. And when we were all getting to know each other, we all talked a lot about what our origin stories were. And everybody was kind of, you know, dealing with a different sort of thing. And everybody had come out at a different time. And, you know, one of the you know main actors in the movie um, is bi. And she was talking a lot about you know, her experiences that she'd faced as, you know, she was a very femme person, you know, and she was like, people think I'm straight all of the time still, you know, and it's like, it's 2022 and that's still happening. Like if you're a femme looking woman and you're bi, everyone's like, no, you're not, you know, and it's, it's messed up. Um, but yeah, no, we, we really bonded a lot. Uh, we had a lot of like little parties out back of the hotel we were staying at. Um, one week, a couple of the cast members and I went axe throwing and it was really cool. Um, it was, it was very, very therapeutic. I recommend axe throwing to anybody if you need a little bit of, um, really, uh, catharsis. Um, yeah, we would like go get ice cream together. Um, we had like a, we went to see Candyman together at one point. We, yeah, we bonded pretty well. And it's, it's the project that I've worked on where I've really stayed in touch most regularly with people afterwards. Um, and, you know, I still talk to the director, the writer, director, John Logan, a whole bunch. And he's, he's someone who very much is learning how to be respectful, you know, to queer and trans people a lot more. I mean, he's queer himself, but, um, you know, he, he hadn't really worked with a lot of trans and non-binary people before, but like he, he was pretty respectful of, of all of us. And so it was cool. It was pretty cool. That's really good to hear. And part of what I love about that movie is that your character kind of like finds ways to rebel against this kind of really oppressive conversion camp led by Kevin Bacon. Um, they kind of escalate and like there's the thing where like you've been put in the boys cabin, but then you put on a dress and then later there's like this scene where you're shooting a rifle. And like I wanted to hear more about like what, what that was like and like did you learn stuff from doing this movie about how to hold on to yourself in the face of like terrible, you know, coercive therapy? Well, I, there's a lot that I feel like I learned. So I'm, I'm a non-binary person. I use they, them. And it really kind of like solidified to me how much so many things exist in one space or the other space. And if you are kind of different in any sort of way and you don't fit into one of these two boxes... Uh, people kind of just don't know what the hell to do with you at all. And uh, there's a lot of 
there's a lot of that that I put on myself where I was like, you know, I must, you know, I, it's, I, it's the way I was like internalizing, you know, queer phobia and transphobia where I was like, you know, something is wrong with me because I, you know, am someone who's kind of in the middle. Um, and these experiences really kind of like psychologically solidified in my head that it's like, no, you have to live your life. You have to be yourself, even if it's not something that other people think is cut and dry. And, um, it really also made me think about how toxic masculinity works because the character, the character that Kevin, uh, that Kevin Bacon plays, by the end of the movie, you're like, this guy is dealing with some type of deep, deep, horrible relationship with masculinity that has made him, you know, secretly very, very antisocial. And, you know, what kinds of insecurities is this guy dealing with that you just never learn about in the film because he's just out there, you know, oppressing, you know, queer people all of the time. So I wanted to get back to the larger question of bad therapy, because it's also, it's interesting to me that in the late 20th century, we start to see the rise of Scientology as this major force um, it's this really successful cult organization created by a science fiction writer, L. Ron Hubbard, and it's explicitly anti-psychology. It's anti-therapy. And yet, as survivors of Scientology have attested in a whole bunch of different places, it, the whole organization is a giant ball of bad therapy. It makes people's problems worse and also destroys their finances. Yeah, I mean, my I had one experience with Scientology, which actually reminds me a little bit of the conversion therapy and they slash them. When I was when I was eighteen years old, I was you know, I was kind of in a place where I was trying to figure myself out. I was away from home. I was kind of just like I was traveling and kind of confused about a lot of stuff about myself. And I, someone on the street asked me if I wanted to take a free personality survey. And I asked why the heck, I thought, why the heck not? That sounds interesting. I was sort of like, yes, new experiences. Let's have new experiences. And uh, so I was taken into this tiny airless office and given a test with like a hundred random questions, many of which really made no sense whatsoever. And then I was shown a movie about Dianetics after which my test results were revealed. And they showed me this chart with like this huge chasm in the middle that was like this gaping hole in my personality that could only be filled by, you guessed it, you know, Scientology. And um, they kind of like a basically like a sinkhole in, in my sense of self, um, a subsidence. And um, this really intense woman who actually reminds me a little bit of the woman who does the therapy session in that movie kind of told me that I was obviously a really bad person and that I must have done something really terrible and I needed help. And I wasn't, you know, I, I needed to, and that there was something really wrong with me. And it played into all the anxieties I already had that I was kind of like still kind of in denial about. And it, it took a lot for me to just walk out of there and be like, no, thank you. And I, it kind of, it freaked me out for a long time after that. Um, and I, I later talked to people who had gone through more of that. And they were like, yes, it's just, that was, that was, that's the beginning. And then it just gets more and more intense from there. Yeah. yeah, there's a way in which Scientology is a science fiction experience that's designed to create this bad therapeutic result, which makes you incredibly codependent with the organization. So 
to return to actual science fiction narratives as opposed to, you know, walk-in science fiction narratives like Scientology, <laughs> Theo, are there any fictional stories that you think of as having really great examples of bad therapy other than they, them, which we've already oh, yeah, delved into? So I thought about the first thing that I ever saw that had any mentions of therapy in it, which was the 1991 movie, What About Bob? Um, and this movie, like very specifically to me, the therapy and it sucked because it showed that, you know, even a trusted professional can be completely egotistical and like have his head completely up his ass and not really care about his clients. And it was meaningful because there's a couple things that the therapist did actually say that I use, you know, to help me if I'm feeling really anxious, which is the whole baby steps sort of thing. Mm. And sometimes if I'm like, oh no, I can't do anything. I'm so sad today. I'll think about, you know, baby steps to the door, you know, baby steps to the hallway, baby steps to getting outside, you know, baby steps to do, you know, breaking everything, uh, breaking everything down and, um, breaking everything down to, you know, try to deal with the sense of overwhelm that you might be experiencing. Um, but also like, yeah, I don't know. This question was kind of hard for me to answer. <laughs> Honestly, I'm going to be real. It's hard to think about because it's yeah, like remembering it terrible experiences yeah. of therapy and fiction. Well, there, there really is like so much, like, especially if you think about how mental health is, you know, mm -hmm. treated in media, it's like everything sucks, you know, and there's so much stigma and there's so much bad shit that Hollywood and, you know, is perpetuating, um, so maybe there's too many examples for me to think of. Uh, I don't know why What About Bob keeps coming up, but... What about you, Charlie Jane? Yeah, I mean, I often, when I think about really bad therapy, I think about Star Trek, actually. We're just coming back to Star Trek again. And, uh, you know, Star Trek has, um, has, like, really positive representations of therapy, including Deanna Troy, which we've already, who we, whom we've already mentioned and who is, like, amazing. Um, but, you know, there's also, okay, in the original Star Trek, there's that, there's, I mean, there's a bunch of episodes of Star Trek where something terrible and, and mind-melting happens or people are, like, subjected to something. But I always think about the original series episode dagger of the mind where basically there's like it's like a prison planet there's a penal colony planet and there's you know kirk goes down alone of course like he always does and you know because that's a good operational safety protocol and like basically there's a machine that's supposed to kind of help pe people deal with their issues and it's supposed to be like a therapy machine but the the evil dude has like cranked it up to the wrong setting and it just like eats your brain instead of giving you therapy. And at one point they give Th Kirk false memories using it. It's like a really creepy episode, actually. It's actually a very like weird messed up episode. And like, it's definitely explicitly about our fears of like, of brainwashing, like we talked about earlier, but also of just like therapists kind of like screwing with our brains in some way, um, which I think is like 60s again, is peak fear of that. Um, but then in recently in season two of Star Trek Picard, and I apologize, this is going to be spoilers for recent stuff. So cover your ears if you haven't seen season two yet. But in season two of Star Trek Picard, there's a whole thing where Q pretends to be a therapist in order to kind of mess with like, so Picard goes back in time to like 2024, 
where his ancestor, who's also named Picard, is supposed to fly on this mission and go to Europa and find some scientific discovery that helps propel us towards the utopian future of the Federation. But Q has decided to screw with this for some reason. And it's that he, Q can't use his power, so he pretends to be a therapist. And he basically goes in and kind of manipulates Picard's ancestor and kind of plays on her insecurities and convinces her that she actually can't do the thing that she's supposed to do. And it's like, it's actually kind of unsettling. Um, you know, in, in researching this episode, I, I found it came across a 2014 paper by a psychologist complaining about negative depictions of psychologists in pop culture. And I hadn't fully remembered until I read the paper uh, how many of Batman's villains are evil therapists, including Scarecrow and Hugo Strange. And it's sort of interesting because Batman is this guy who had a horrible trauma as a child, and he's dealt with it through pure rationality. But then he he goes and fights therapists. Like that's his whole thing is like, I don't have to have therapy. I've just mastered my trauma through rationality. I'm not gonna beat up therapists. That's all I wanted to say. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely therapists that I've been wanting to beat up um, in some in some recent uh, TV shows in particular. So one of the things that drives me nuts, this is a trope that you see a lot in science fiction where there's some woman who has a superpower and it must be controlled by some dude named Xavier, perhaps, um, <laughs> or perhaps someone who is in the Umbrella Academy. Um, and so one of the tropes you see is, as I was sort of sub-tweeting, sub-potting, um, is Jean Grey constantly having her mind invaded by Xavier. And he's like, look, if I don't do this, you will become OP, overpowered, um, and you'll destroy the world. And the thing that I thought was so interesting on Umbrella Academy, um, which is another sort of superhero show which has X-Men-like qualities to it, is we have the character of Victor, who until recently was basically the Jean Grey character. Um, the dude who's in charge of the Umbrella Academy has put various blocks and drugs into Victor's system in order to prevent them from um, blowing the world up. And then when Victor transitions into being a guy, all that evaporates. Suddenly, we're no longer worried about Victor controlling his special powers. You know, it was only when Victor was living as a woman that that was a concern. And so I think um, the more I've been sort of immersed in these kinds of narratives, the more I just see that coming up again and again, where you have a woman or someone else who has a marginalized position who just has to be controlled by a white man by going into their mind and setting up blocks. Theo, I was wondering if you saw the most recent Matrix music movie, Matrix Resurrections, and if you had any thoughts about like Neil Patrick Harris's character in it, who's an evil therapist. Very evil. Yes, I did. And I was totally tricked by him when I saw the movie. At first, you know, the, I think the first scene that they have as you're, uh, as you're kind of figuring out what the plot is, like he seems like a really good guy at first. You're like, oh, like he's, maybe he's, gonna, maybe he's helping Neo out. And then he really scared me when he ended up being a bad guy. Um, I didn't see that coming. Uh, but if I look back, I'm like, I probably should have seen that coming. Um, I think the thing that was particularly scary about him was that like they picked Neil Patrick Harris to play this therapist and he's this nice guy, like he's even queer and he really, you know, seems like, you know, he's here to help out. But, um, yeah, I really liked that casting choice because it was very much like looks can be deceiving. So let's finish up by talking about how the process of writing and acting and creating can be therapeutic. Um, I, I want us to just 
throw off this bad therapeutic feeling and each talk about something creative we've worked on that was therapeutic. So Theo, is acting ever therapeutic for you? What's that like? Uh, acting is totally therapeutic for me sometimes. Um, I'm always looking to see if I can learn how to be a better person. You know, that's something that's very, very important to me. And I really identify as an artist and art makes a lot of sense to me. And sometimes I feel like I can't learn something the right way unless I see some type of example of it. You know, if I see some type of representation or I, I see some type of, I see or consume some type of metaphor. Um, so I, I, I always feel like when I'm really digging into a character and I'm learning their psychology, because I always love doing like a psychological profile of the characters that I work on. Sometimes I even have done like, you know, what their zodiac sign is and what their favorite <laughs> color is and stuff like that. Um, I always end up learning something about myself. Uh, so yeah, I guess, I guess acting is kind of therapeutic and can be kind of a release and, you know, sometimes helps me. Like I grew up in a family where we couldn't express any of our emotions. And so sometimes uh, acting helps me learn about emotions, um, if that makes sense. Super therapeutic. I love acting. Charlie Jane, what about you? Yeah, I obviously wrote a whole book a while back about how writing can be a source of healing during horrible times. It's called Never Say You Can't Survive. And, you know, for me, it's been really positive in a couple of ways to think about that. One, I've been, first of all, I've been thinking about trauma and how we heal from it and how it's not this simple, straightforward process of detective work. It's a really complicated, you know, you have to kind of grapple with it. But also I've been actually blessed to be able to write a lot of queer and trans superheroes lately. And that's just felt really healing to me on, on multiple levels during this horrible time we're in. How about you, Annalie? So my previous novel, my, my latest published novel, um, Future of Another Timeline, was very therapeutic for me because it's partly about my own experiences growing up. Um, it's set in Irvine, California, where where I grew up. It deals with some of the issues with abuse that I experienced in my family. Um, and I actually went back and read my high school journals before writing it because I wanted to remember what it felt like to be inside my teenage brain, dealing with having an abusive dad and all the other things that come with being um, gender weird in high school. Um, and I actually talked to some of my old high school friends about their experiences, and it was really good to turn my experiences into a coherent narrative, even if it was actually quite fictional, because I actually am not a murderer or a time traveler, so um, a lot of that we that you know of. Uh, yeah. I am, however, a vampire robot, so. <laughs> I think that what we're realizing here is that narration can be a form of therapy in itself, either good or bad therapy. And what matters is who controls that narrative. Do we have agency over our own stories or is someone else trying to tell our stories for us, brainwashing us into kind of believing bad things about ourselves and our communities? All right. Well, let's finish up on a somewhat happier note. Um, Theo, why don't you tell us what's coming up next for you and what you're working on right now? Oh, gosh. Well, I can't like really talk about it, but I I wrote a book. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it was very therapeutic working on, and uh, we're still working on it. Yeah. I'm really excited and hope that I can get it published. Uh, but other than that, um, my partner and I are just trying to start our own podcasts. And we've been, you know, working on this big sci fi 
universe uh, for the past couple of years and, you know, doing a, doing a lot of writing, honestly, because I, I don't just like acting. Um, but in regards to acting, just trying to get another really cool job. Awesome. Nice. And writing some music, too. I just like writing and making all kinds of things, honestly. That's the best. All right. Well, we're going to be looking out for your podcast coming up. Thank you for listening to this special live episode of Our Opinions Are Correct. Remember, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash ouropinionsarecorrect and on Twitter at OOACpod. Thanks so much to our incredible, valiant producer, Veronica Simonetti. Thanks so much to Chris Palmer for the music. And thanks to all of you for supporting us. We'll talk to you later. If you're a patron, we'll see you on Discord. Bye!